Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to begin reading in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we continue to consider this text superintended by the Holy Spirit for the sake not only of the Hebrew Christians in the first century, but for the sake of the church in every age, that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Help us to look to Abraham as an example of faith and to follow that example, that we might look to Christ and our eternal reward with him, that we might be heavenly-minded in our faith as Abraham was. In Jesus' name, amen. I had the privilege of conducting a funeral service yesterday for one of our members who died in March named Marcia Shaw. I remember visiting Marcia at the end of her life. I brought this up at the funeral yesterday, going to her home and visiting her, and her telling me that she knew she was just about to die. And I wondered what she would say about her impending death. And here's what she told me. I was sitting there with Tracy Gruggett, the pastor of Grace Reformed. We were together because she was once a member there, and we were sort of pastoring together in that situation. And she looked at us and said to us, I can't wait to see Jesus. I left her home a bit stunned by her faith. She was looking forward to her reward in Christ rather than clinging to her life here. I remember actually thinking as I walked out and Tracy and I discussing, if only we had such strong, heavenly-minded faith. It's one of those scenes as a pastor where you're a bit humbled by the faith of one of the members in your church as they stare death in the face and reflect on how they can't wait to see the Lord. Well, this morning, we consider another Christian who had strong, heavenly-minded faith like that. We look today at the heavenly-minded faith of Abraham. Abraham is the father of all who believe. He is, biblically, the paradigm of Christian faith. We see that at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. We see that in the Song of Mary, the Magnificat. We see that in the prayer of Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. We see that as Paul lays out Abraham as a father of the faith in Romans 4. We see that as Paul lays out Abraham as a father of the faith in Galatians 3. We see that as Abraham is held up as an example of faith in James 2. We see that here in the book of Hebrews. And today we want you to see how Abraham's faith was fixed upon the promises of God. Abraham's faith was fixed upon the promises of God, even in difficult circumstances. Here's the point I'm driving at this morning. The providential circumstances in Abraham's life were hard, but he trusted the Lord's promises in the face of those difficult providences. And he did so while looking forward to his heavenly reward. Here's what I really want you to learn as Christian believers. Faith 
fixed upon the glorious promises of God will patiently trust the Lord under the difficult providences of God. For our inestimable privileges or riches in Christ will cause the soul of the believer to be well satisfied with the smallest portions of earthly enjoyments. To accomplish that end, this morning we're going to look first at the grace of Christian faith. Second, the obedience of Christian faith. And third, the object of Christian faith. So the grace of Christian faith, the obedience of Christian faith, and the object of Christian faith. So let's look first at the grace of Christian faith in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed. Now notice this phrase, when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called. I want you to notice that language. That participle, when he was called, is passive. In other words, when I say that a participle is passive, I mean the action of the verb happened to Abraham. He was not the one doing the action of the verb. The action of the verb was happening to him. Abraham was called. Now who called Abraham? The Lord called Abraham. Keep your hand there in Hebrews 11 and look at Genesis chapter 12. We'll go back to the calling of Abraham as we continue really in Hebrews 11 being taken through the early chapters of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, you remember his name was originally Abram, it's meaning exalted father, it gets changed to Abraham, meaning the father of many nations. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. When the Lord called him, when the Lord spoke to him, he was promising to him a land. Now notice what it goes on to say, and I will make of you a great nation. So the Lord is promising to Abram a land and a nation or a people. And look what he goes on to say, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham has promised a land. He's promised a nation. And he's promised that in him, through him, in fact, we'll read later in Genesis 12, 7, in Genesis 17, in Genesis 22, that it's going to be through Abraham's offspring, all the nations will be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, this is an interesting scene narratively in the book of Genesis. It's an interesting scene because we've just learned that Abram is from Shem's line. If you remember, we learned that from Genesis 11:10 and following. But if you remember the story as we went through the genealogy, in Genesis 5, we get the genealogy that goes from Adam straight to Seth, skipping over Cain and Abel, driving you to the seed of the woman. That genealogy drives you through Enoch, who pleased God by faith, to Noah, who also pleased God by faith. And from Noah through the flood and the coming out of the flood and Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Shem is the son whom we've heard already is going to be the one through whom the seed of the woman comes. And so now, coming out of that genealogy of Shem, we've narrowed it down through Terah, etc., to Shem's offspring, Abram. And we're continuing to look for this seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15 through Seth via Enoch, via Noah, via Shem, and now Abram. In the midst of looking for that seed of the woman, we hear this announcement, the Lord spoke to Abram. The Lord 
called Abram. And the Lord promised blessing to him. If you look there in Genesis 12 and you count the use of the word blessing, the use of the word blessing happens five times. That same Hebrew word for blessing is countering a Hebrew word for cursing that has occurred five times. Genesis 3.14, Genesis 3.17, Genesis 4.11, Genesis 5.29, Genesis 9.25. In other words, five times the Lord has dropped the word of the curse. And now, as we narrow down to the seed of the woman, the seed of Seth, the seed of Enoch, the seed of Noah, the seed of Shem, Abram, as we narrow down to him, God calls him out, and as God promises him a land and a nation, he also promises him that he'll be a blessing to all the families of the earth, and he blesses him five times, countering the five curses that came before, and we have at this moment in Genesis 12 an announcement that something's happening with Abraham in God keeping his promise, and that we ought to be paying attention to that, that God has made a promise to send a Messiah who would save the earth. And something's happening here with Abram. So as readers were being told to pay attention, the seed of the woman is coming through this Abram. The promises I'm making to Abram are the foundational promises upon which I will reverse the curse upon the earth. It is through him and his offspring that I will bless all the families of the earth. But here's the question in the midst of that. Why Abram? What was Abram like prior to God calling him? Was it because Abram was mightier in faith? Was it because Abram loved the Lord? Was it because Abram was an inherently righteous man? No, in fact, if one looks at Joshua 24 and verse 2, here's what the Holy Spirit tells us about Abram. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abram, and Ahor, and they served other gods. They served other gods. They were pagans. That's what Abraham's family was, a group of idolaters. So God's calling of Abram was sheer, sovereign grace. Abram didn't ask for it. He did not call Abram because Abram was less sinful or less idolatrous than the other peoples of the earth. He called Abram because he lovingly chose to set his grace upon him. And though this calling was to go to a promised land with a promised people or nation, this was not a mere call to temporal blessing. Rather, this was a call to eternal blessing in the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, the Christ. Now, how do I know this? Well, first, the flow of the narrative of Genesis is telling me that something greater than the blessing of the nation of Israel is being spoken to here. Genesis 12 intentionally follows Genesis 1 through 11. I know that sounds pedantic, but give it some thought for a minute. When the Lord singles out Abram, he's not saying, in Genesis 1 through 11, I've told you the history of the world, and now I'm just really interested in telling you about Israel, so let's start in Genesis 12 and just talk about Israel from now on. His point is that in some way, through Abram and the nation that comes from him, Israel, he's reversing what we saw in Genesis 1 through 11. So the flow tells me that something greater than just a nation and a people. Abram was indeed the father of the nation of Israel, who did indeed inherit the land of Canaan. But Abram knew that the land and the nation were a type of what was to come in his seed, the seed of the woman, the Christ. Second, Abram was told that through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. He was told that. His name is changed to Abraham, as he is the father of many nations. 
This was God's design with Abraham from the beginning. Third, the Old Testament witness, the rest of the Old Testament witness, continually points to the offspring of Abraham through whom God would bless all the peoples, saying he is the Messiah who is to come. And the New Testament witness tells us over and over that Jesus Christ is Abraham's offspring and that Abraham knew that was true, that Abraham knew Jesus was his offspring. In fact, when Jesus is confronted with some of the religious leaders in Israel in John 8, and they're rejecting that he's the Messiah, Jesus says, you're not of your father Abraham, because if you were of your father Abraham, you would do what your father Abraham did. You know what your father Abraham did? He rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. He believed in me. Abraham was given physical promises of a land and a nation, promises that were types of the new heavens and the new earth of the true Israel Jesus who would bring the fulfillment. Thus the church is now called in 1 Peter 2 a spiritual nation. A spiritual nation in Hebrews in the wilderness marching toward the eternal city, the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. And Abraham was given spiritual promises of eternal blessings through his offspring, the Christ. Abraham was called to believe both the physical promises, land and nation, and the spiritual promises, the Messiah who would bless all the families of the earth. And Abraham believed both. He believed and obeyed the call of God. God called, please hear this, God called a pagan man to salvation. God graciously gave that pagan man the grace of faith, and that man believed. Faith is the gift of God to undeserving sinners. Like Abraham, you and I were walking through life as undeserving sinners when the Lord intervened and called us to faith in Christ. That's what Paul gets at in Ephesians chapter 2. You can look there. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. Listen to what he says. And you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, God was kind to save us. Sheer kindness. If you're an unbeliever here, I beseech you to trust in Christ. He alone can save you. He alone. That leads to our second point, the obedience of Christian faith. If that's the grace of faith that God sovereignly, graciously called out Abraham, let's look at the obedience of Christian faith. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed. He obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing 
where he was going. By faith, Abraham obeyed. Abraham's faith gave birth to obedience. The grace of faith that God sets upon us gives birth to obedience. The grace of faith, if you will, is the root, and obedience is the fruit. True faith necessarily gives birth to obedience to the Lord. Now, what was the nature of Abraham's obedience? Notice that last phrase in verse 8. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Think about the obedience there, the obedience of faith in this picture. He went out not knowing where he was going. He left his family. He left his home. He left his country. He did so to go to live as a foreigner with no permanent home. Look at verse 9. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, that land that God promised to him, Canaan. He went to live there, but notice this phrase, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Listen, to leave your own country, your own family, your own home is to leave and forsake all that is pleasant, comfortable, and known. It's to forsake the whole of your personal security. If you stop and think about it, most of your personal security is found in living in the nation you live in. That wasn't the case. It wouldn't rattle your cage every election time when things don't go your way. Most of your security is found in the home where you live, among the friends and the family that you have. That's where you're comfortable, where you're known, where you feel secure. And he was forsaking all of that security for a land he did not know. For a land he did not know. He didn't even know where he was going initially, wherever the Lord tells me. Further, when he arrived in that land, he lived as a foreigner the whole time. He lived in tents. Do you know what tents don't have? A foundation. There is no foundation on a tent. There is no permanence to it. It's not particularly secure. He knew he was receiving a place as an inheritance, but even then, he knew that this land would not be his during his lifetime. He was, in fact, told by God in Genesis 15, that's where we read about it, that he and his people would not be in the land of promise for 430 years. Only after being enslaved in Egypt and coming out of that enslavement in the Exodus would they finally put down any foundation in the promised land. He never received anything in the promised land save a tomb to be buried in. That's it. A place for his body to be placed when he was dead. He never received anything. Listen to what it says Luke tells us about this through the sermon of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and verse 5. Listen to what he says. Abram went out to Canaan, yet the Lord gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. He lived his whole life, why don't you hear this? He lived his whole life with no solid foundation under his feet. He lived his whole life with no place to hang his hat and call home. Whole life. As John Owen rightly said, John Owen's a Puritan thinker from 17th century, the sum is that he wholly committed himself under the power, faithfulness, goodness, and conduct of God without the least encouragement from a prospect of the place where he was going. Not the least encouragement. Folks, we don't generally live in that condition here. You have some prospect of encouragement from the place where you're going. You have a place 
that has a foundation that provides some kind of security with your family and friends, with your own culture and language. Even if things go wrong in 2020 in the elections in your nation, you got more elections two years later and four years later, and it just keeps on going. You have something in this earth to cling to, if you will. Abraham had none of that. Do you know the parallel, though, that's being gotten at between Abraham and us in Hebrews 11? We are sojourners on this earth, we're told in 1 Peter chapter 2. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, Ephesians 2.11 and following, who are sojourning in this present fallen world. And God has called us to faith in Christ, a faith which issues in obedience to his word. We are often called to obey in the face of difficult providences. Suffering, if you will, has a way of wrenching our grip off of this world. Sometimes we feel like God is using hard providences to rip one finger at a time off of this world. But he graciously does so, for this is not our home. It's not our home. Love for this world, for what is offered here, is often at the root of all of our disobedience to the Lord. It's because we love this world and what's on offer in this world that we are so often disobedient. We want something here, and so we'll sin to get it. We'll rest our trust in it. We must trust the Lord, though, and, like Abraham, be looking forward to our eternal home. We call our missionaries to do this, literally. Our missionaries quite literally leave here, home, family, all that's comfortable, to go to a place they know not where. They knew they were going to Indonesia or India or wherever. No, they didn't. When they left here, they went to train. No idea where they were headed. But we need to make the same spiritual commitment. We may not be moving to all the nations of the earth, but we certainly need to set our hearts and minds on heaven and not here. That leads to my third point, the object of Christian faith. Look at Hebrews 11.10. Here's the explanation for how Abraham did this. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, unlike his tent. That Unlike his tent, the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. See, we're getting an explanation for Abraham's obedient faith. How could Abraham be so obedient? How could he be so trusting? For what was the hope that his eyes were set upon? What was the treasure that Abraham sold everything he had in exchange for? What was Abraham looking forward to and longing for? On what ground did Abraham find his security and hope? For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations. His tent had none. This city would. Whose designer and builder is God. Abraham was looking forward to the eternal city that his offspring, the Christ, would bring. Abraham understood that his offspring, the nation of Israel, was a type of the true Israel, Jesus, the Messiah. Abraham's seed is the Christ. Abraham understood that the promised land of Canaan was just a type of the new heavens and the new earth that Jesus would bring. He understood that. He knew and believed that he would be the heir of the whole world through his offspring, Romans 4.13. Abraham believed he'd be the heir of the whole world, not just Canaan, the whole world. Yes, Abraham believed God's promise of land and seed, but he believed him for more than that land and seed. He believed him for more, if you will, than the land of Canaan and the nation of Israel. He believed his offspring would be the Christ who would bring the kingdom of Christ, the new heavens and the new earth, a better country, a heavenly city. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 14. 
for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. See, Abraham, when he thought about his homeland, could have thought about Ur of the Chaldees. But that's not what he was thinking about with regard to his homeland. And I would tell you, when we send missionaries out to the nations, their homeland ought not to be back here. It ought to be in heaven, or they won't endure. And I will tell you that if your homeland is not safely in heaven with Christ, you will not endure in the Christian life either. Clearly, Abraham was not looking forward to merely physical promises, but his eyes were set upon heaven. And those who miss that in the story of Abraham miss the point entirely. As John Owen said, to suppose that Abraham saw nothing in this promise and covenant, but only things confined to this life, nothing of spiritual grace or mercy, nothing of eternal reward or glory, is so contrary to the analogy of faith, that's that Scripture interprets Scripture, to the expressed testimony of Scripture, so destructive of all foundations of religion, so unworthy of the nature and properties of God, rendering his title of the Father of the Faithful, and his example in believing so useless as that it is any, a wonder that any men of any tolerable society should indulge such an imagination. In other words, he can't even tolerate the thought that you or anyone would think that Abraham's eyes were set merely on Canaan and the nation of Israel. He says it's an intolerable thought. Christian, it was Abraham's heavenly mindedness that helped him faithfully maintain his earthly pilgrimage. And the same is true for us if we hope to persevere in the faith. We must be heavenly-minded if we are to be of any earthly good. So how? How do we grow in heavenly-mindedness? I want to give you some applications from the Puritan Thomas Manton on how to get our hearts into the frame we see with Abraham. Now, I'm going to take a lot of his quotes and read them and just sort of give you a summary at the beginning. But here are the five applications I'm taking from him. He actually has more than five. I only took five. He has a whole sermon just on how to apply this particular text. He has several sermons on Hebrews 11, 8 through 10, several, and one whole one just on how to apply this particular text. But I'll give you five of his applications from that sermon. First, he says to enjoy grace and the means of grace. Enjoy grace and the means of grace. Listen to what he says. This is his quote. Let us enjoy as much of heaven as we can in our pilgrimage. In the beginnings of grace, the first fruits of the Spirit, and in the ordinances. Now, what does he mean? First, when he says, enjoy grace, listen to what he says. In the first fruits of the Spirit, grace is young glory, and joy in the Holy Ghost is the suburbs of heaven. You enter upon your country and inheritance by degrees. Fullness of joy is for the life to come, and joy in the Holy Spirit is the beginning of it. As the winds carry the odors and sweet smells of Arabia into the neighboring provinces, so the joys of heaven, those sweet smells and odors of the upper paradise, are by the breathings and gales of the Holy Spirit conveyed into the hearts of believers. This is our advance money, our taste in the wilderness, our morning glances of the daylight of glory. Union with Christ is the beginning of heaven. It is heaven in the molding and framing. Why don't men write like this anymore? He also says to enjoy the means of grace as part of this first one in the ordinances. This is what he says. The time of our pilgrimage is a sad time. How should we solace ourselves? We don't always fully understand that it is a sad time, incidentally. 
because we live in a country that is so unbelievably prosperous and has so much access to alleviation of suffering. Carl Truman, one of my favorite church historians and historians in general, is often asked, if you could pick any period of history to live in, which period of history would you choose? His answer is this, the one I live in now. Because if you know anything about history, you know how absolutely miserable prior eras were. So he goes on as to why, particularly with regard to suffering and health care. In the era that Manton is writing, it was not unusual for you to lose most of your children. John Owen, who I quoted, lost all 11 of his children and his wife. His oldest child only made it to 27. It's not unusual. So he says, the time of our pilgrimage is a sad time. How should we solace ourselves? The ordinances, the commands God gives in worship, are types of heaven. Listen to what he says. Prayer brings us to the throne of grace and gives us an entrance into God's presence. In the word preached is the presence of the blessed Trinity bringing down heaven itself to us. The Lord's Supper is a pledge of that new wine we shall drink in our Father's kingdom. By reading, reading things by other Christians, we talk with the saints departed, the prophets and apostles that wrote what we read. Meditation brings us into the company of God, and where we walk, God walks with us. And at home or abroad, we are still with God. The Sabbath is a type of heaven. Here is a ceasing from work, and there is a ceasing from sin and misery, and eternal rest and repose in the bosom of Christ. Psalms, now when he's talking about psalms, he's talking about singing in the congregation. They only sang psalms in that era, largely. That's in the 1600s when it started to change to hymns, too. By the way, if you didn't know, to sing a hymn used to be considered liberal. You just sang the psalms. Psalms do fitly resemble hallelujahs. The word lectures of praise that shall be read over the free grace of God and redemption by Christ to all eternity. The congregation, the church gathered, signifies the general assembly and congregation of saints and angels above, so that a Christian is even seated in Christ when in and about the ordinances. That's his first means. Second, he says this, enjoy earthly blessings as tastes of heavenly blessings. Here's a quote. The enjoyment of any temporal blessing should stir us up to the more serious consideration of heavenly blessings. There are better things laid up in heaven. If a strange place affords us content and refreshment, will not our own country much more? If the creature be sweet, heaven is better. A spiritual use of the creature does much raise our hearts. We help our souls by our bodies and make the senses which were wont to be the inlets of sin to be instruments of heavenly mindedness. Grace can work matter out of anything it sees. A good man can distill precious liquor out of common matters. He can see another world in this world and does not only make a temporal use of creatures but a spiritual. Here's his point, that what faith does is it looks at all the earthly gifts and recognizes that God is better still. Third, he says, think often of Christ in heaven with him. Christ has raised us to be with him in heaven. Think often of Christ and heaven with him. Fourth, he says to meditate on the promises of God and the word. Meditation is of great use. Here's a quote. It brings a believer into the company of the blessed and puts his head above the clouds. To meditate is not some kind of Eastern thing where you clear your mind. It's to think about God's word, to think about God's goodness, even to think about God's creation and how that tells you how gloriously good he must be. It brings a believer into the company of the blessed and puts his head above the clouds in the midst of the glory of the world to come. 
Meditation is but a more temperate ecstasy. Great hopes are known by thoughts. Thoughts are the spies of the soul. Where a thing is strongly expected, the thoughts are wont to spend themselves in creating images and suppositions of contentment we shall receive when we enjoy this thing. When you really want something, then your thoughts are going to meditate on that thing that you want and how much you'll enjoy it. If a poor man be adopted into the succession of a crown, he would be feasting and entertaining himself with the happiness and pleasure of that estate. See, if I were poor and I was told I was going to inherit the crown, I'd be thinking about that all day long, feasting on it, enjoying it. When a man minds only earthly things, earthly thoughts salute him first thing in the morning. Earthly thoughts busy him all the day. Earthly thoughts lay him down in his bed. Earthly thoughts play in his fancy all night. The thoughts of God and his kingdom find no access. Glances only on heaven are an evidence of a carnal heart that is at home. The more heavenly a Christian is, the more he is himself. As the more rational and considerate a man is, the more he is a man. So think much about the Lord. Finally, he says, love and treasure gathering with Christ's church. That's what he says. Prize the communion of saints. Now, that's what he calls the communion of saints. When we come together to hear the word, to sing, take the Lord's Supper, prize the communion of saints. Listen to what he says. This is heaven begun. A godly man, when he was to die, said, I shall change my place, but not my company. They that expect to be there where God and Christ and the saints are should delight more in converse with them here. In a foreign land, a man is glad to meet with his own countrymen. We should be glad to meet with those that go with us to heaven. A Christian will converse with such as he shall be with hereafter. It is of great use and quickening to him. You hear what he says? Enjoy the grace of God and the means of grace he's given. Preaching the word, prayer, the sacraments, gathering with the saints. Look at God's blessings in creation and recognize that he is better still. Meditate often on God's word, his promises. Meditate often on all the blessings you have and what those tell you about how good he is and how glorious he is. Love and treasure gathering with Christ's church. This is heaven begun. Let me pray. Father, we give thanks for your son, for the kindness you've shown us in Christ. May we be a people who think often of our heavenly home with you. Father, we ask that you would pry our fingers off of this world, its enjoyments and its entertainments, and cause us to long for heaven, to long to be with our Lord. We give thanks for the taste of the heavenly gifts we have, even as we gather here to worship, to sing, to be with the company of the saints with whom we'll spend eternity, to hear from our Lord Jesus Christ as he speaks through his word by his spirit. We pray that we would be ever mindful of him, that we would be like our father in the faith, Abraham, those who obediently look toward the heavenly city. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.